Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, in which we will learn of the institution of the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 17. This morning we'll begin in verse 9. Seven centuries before the birth of the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah described him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One translation rendered that phrase quite well, I think, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that in Jesus we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. James, our Lord's half-brother, describes Jesus as full of compassion and mercy. And we learned from our study last week that God assures us of his kind intention just when we need it the most. Just when Abram and Sarai needed it the most, God appeared to them. Thirteen years had passed since the birth of Ishmael and the beginning of chapter 17. And as this chapter begins, 24 years, 24 long years had come and gone since the promise was originally given to Abram. Another year would pass before the child of the promise would be, was born. And that's a long time to wait, 25 years. But here's a word of comfort for all of us. God knows. He knows that you're patiently waiting for him and for his perfect timing. He knows all about what you're going through. Even if it's something you've had to keep to yourself and nobody else knows, God does. And he is going to honor your wait. I have so many favorite verses in the Bible, but one that's been a particularly special source of blessing to me personally was part of our scripture reading this morning. Yet those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Yes, sometimes God calls upon us to wait. But it doesn't mean that he's forgotten us. Nor does it mean that he doesn't care. We serve a God that is compassionate and kind. No, he's not a genie in a bottle. This is not Larry Hagman and, and Barbara Eden on a beach in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and you rub the bottle and God pops out and does whatever you want him to do. No, because that would make you God, because you're telling him what to do. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not that kind of God. He, he wouldn't stoop to that position. But we should never forget that God knows about our problems. He cares about us personally. And he's perfectly capable of providing the solution to every single problem we have, whether we think it's a big problem or whether we consider it a little one. God reveals himself to Abram in this chapter, and we see this principle at work as chapter 17 begins. Abram is 99 years old. His wife, at this point, at the point that the chapter begins, is 89 years old. And she was unable to bear children in her youth. And now she's well past the age where some sort of natural birthing would, would occur. Yet God had promised an heir for Abram. And each time this couple attempted 
to, to try to accumulate that air outside of the normal boundaries of marriage, the relationship between husband and wife, God vetoed every effort that they had. So by now, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, you would think that they would have gotten some sort of notice that it's not going to happen some other way, but at the same time, the clock has been ticking. And as far as Sarai is concerned, she's probably thinking it's way gone. So they have, an, they have a dilemma here. They want to trust God. They would love dearly to trust God, but they can't see how God is going to possibly accomplish what he's promised them that he would do. And I know you've been in that situation before, just like I have. We know we should trust God. We know that we can trust and we know that he loves us and that he cares and that he's perfectly capable of taking care of the problem. But a lot of time passes and we wonder, is he still going to do it? The answer is yes, he's going to do it with his perfect timing and in the way that he so chooses. Because he's not a genie in a bottle. I always thought if I had three wishes, you know what the first one's going to be? Just like yours, I want a hundred more wishes. That's got to be the way it works. But I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's, that's, that's going beyond the, the scope of that uh, meaning of that passage. But, but I know if I had three wishes, I thought, what, what would they be? I'm not going to tell you what I think mine are. You, you don't tell me what yours are either. But, but I know I'd mess it up. I know that I would mess it up. You know, used to when the, when the Texas lottery first came out, I used to buy one of those scratch-off tickets and, you know, buy the, the six-digit number. And I would look every Wednesday night. And finally, one of my friends, one of my good friends, kind of said, Bruce, do you think God really wants you to win the Texas lottery? <laughs> I said, I, you know, I've thought about it. He probably does. He said, why are you spending the dollar then? You know, <laughs> why, why don't you just let it go? Because, you know, a lot of people that win the Texas lottery, I know someone who has, by the way, it hadn't happened to her, but I know a lot of people who win the Texas lottery, their life is ruined after that because they have no capacity for what they wanted so badly. So I'm sure I would mess up my three wishes, but you know who's not going to mess it up? It's God. He is not going to mess it up for you. Because if you're asking him for the wrong thing, he's not going to give it to you. You know why? Because he loves you. That's why he's not going to give it to you any more than you would give it to your child, something your child that they don't need. If your child said, if you said, what do you want for dinner, honey? And the little child said, I want M&M's for dinner. Well, what else? That'd be fine for dessert, but what do you want for dinner? Well, I just want M&M's for dinner. That's all I want. Are you going to give it to them? Not if you're a good parent. You're not. You're going to withhold that. But you know, that child, that child wants to have pleasure at dinner. So you may cook them something that you know that they love. And you may cook them a nice dessert that wouldn't be quite as bad as having M&M's for dinner. You're, in other words, you will do your best as a parent to accomplish the desire behind their request, if it's a legitimate desire. But you don't necessarily grant that particular request, and certainly you may not grant it at the snap of their fingers. Now, if we wouldn't do that as parents, why do we expect God to act as soon as we snap our fingers? He's God and we're not. But he loves us more than anybody's ever loved you on this planet. And he knows what you're going through. And he knew what Abram and Sarai were going through. After all, he's the one that allowed them to go through the situation. He knew every bit of what they were going through. And so he speaks. Apparently, he hadn't spoken for 13 years to Abram. Maybe it's because of the mess up in chapter 16. We don't know. The text is silent about that. But he speaks. And he gives such great words of comfort. As hard as it might have been for them to believe. As, as we'll see in this passage today, and actually in the next passage, as laughable as it was, God does intend for Sarai to have a child of her own. This chapter is broken down into 
four parts. We studied the first part last week. God's assurance of the promise. That was verses 1 through 8. Today we'll consider God's requirement of circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Next week we'll speak of God's specific word on the promise through Sarah. And then finally, Abram's compliance with the sign of the covenant by faith. That's the final portion of this chapter. But today in verses 9 through 14, we will consider the God's requirement of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. The promise of both land and offspring are repeated in the first eight verses of chapter seven and 17, and both of them were said to be everlasting with respect to their nature, emphasizing the fact that this is an unconditional covenant, the outcome of which is not going to be determined by the faithfulness of Abram and Sarai, or later on it'll be Abraham and Sarah. Their faithfulness won't determine the outcome of this covenant. God's faithfulness will determine the outcome of this covenant. And here for the first time in the book of Genesis, in the first eight verses, God's going to identify himself as El Shaddai, a phrase that Jerome rendered a long, long time ago, Almighty God, in the the translation from the original Hebrew into the Latin that we call now the Vulgate. That's not a bad translation, but as we saw last time, This phrase, El Shaddai, is probably more inclusive of the entirety of God's infinite perfections, not simply related to his omnipotence. And typically in Genesis, when we see the term El Shaddai, it is related to some sort of fertility or childbearing. God's requirement of circumcision, verses 9 through 14. Read along with me. God said further to Abram, or Abraham, his name has been changed now. Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, through your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. Verse 13, a servant who is born in your house or who is, who is bought with your money shall sur- surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In this section, God outlines the instructions for the practice of circumcision, which would be a sign of identification with the Abrahamic covenant. A sign of identification with the Abrahamic covenant. And this sign, this ritual, was to be practiced by all males who shared the faith of Abraham. The sign of circumcision would be a symbolic reminder to God of the promises that he's made. And it would serve as a reminder to the seed of Abraham to live in loyalty to the covenant. The sign of the Noahic covenant, we've studied this before, was the rainbow. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant would be circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was Sabbath observance. So the sign of the Noahic covenant, the rainbow. Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. Mosaic covenant, Sabbath observance. 
But some of you may be wondering, if you're paying close attention, why I would use the phrase, a symbolic reminder to God. That's a decent question. If we were to turn our attention back just a few chapters to the Noahic Covenant, we would remember that in chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, these chapters point to the fact that the rainbow was primarily a sign for God. Now, we look up in, in the sky and see a rainbow, and we remember that God has promised that he will not ever again destroy the earth by a flood. And it, it is helpful to us, and it's a sign of hope to us, but the text actually says that the sign is a sign for God, so that God will remember his promise. Every time God sees a rainbow, he remembers his promise. Now, this is obviously language of accommodation, so that, so that we can understand an infinite concept. We understand God by analogy, and this is one of those things, because God doesn't need to tie a string around his finger to remember not to destroy the earth by means of a flood, or to remember to honor the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't need to do that. We need to do that. I've got little things that I do. When, I'm gonna, when I think that I'm a, I want to remember something, I put a little card in my dashboard and write on there that I have to see it every time I get in the car. You probably have things like that too, but God doesn't have anything like that except so that we can understand God better in language of accommodation, we have the rainbow, we have circumcision, and we have the Sabbath for the Jews in the Old Testament. So when God observes the rainbow, he will remember his promise. And in both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible, when God remembers something, it doesn't mean that it just came to mind. It means he acts upon it. So he continues to bless Abraham. Now, there's a very important point that I want to, to recall, make sure we all recall in our minds before we move back to the Abrahamic covenant, but the, the, that is that the Noahic covenant was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God didn't promise this. If you, if you people will obey me and honor me, then I will never again destroy the earth by means of a flood. If that was the promise, a few years ago, when we had one of those tropical storms come through, Allison, I would have begun to wonder if he was going to destroy the earth by means of a flood. But that's not it. God, Noah made no promises to God in chapter 9. God made all the promises there. God alone made a commitment. God committed himself to a certain course of action irrespective of what Noah and his descendants would do. That's an unconditional unilateral covenant. In similar fashion... The rite of circumcision was a reminder to God of his covenant. But there's a component here that we didn't see in our discussion of Noah. The sign of the covenant was also to remind the descendants of Abraham of their responsibility to live in loyalty to the covenant, not to ensure the fulfillment of the covenant. And this is so important. Not to ensure the fulfillment of the covenant, but that they might enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Now, if I could be open and frank with you, I, I would sometimes people say, if I could be honest with you, I hope I'm honest with you all the time, but if I could just be frank, frank with you, I, I really am aware that it's difficult for 21st century Christian audiences to see what in the world there is that's that important about the Abrahamic covenant. Why in the world would we take this much time several weeks, in fact, to lay down the groundwork of the Abrahamic Covenant to keep stressing, to keep stressing that it's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. What, in the, what difference does it make? 
Is there a point to the whole thing? Well, I've got to tell you, yes, there is. There's a huge point. In fact, I think the, 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 the whole idea of the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that it's an unconditional unilateral covenant is one of the foundational truths of all the Old Testament. And as Walter Kaiser, the eminent, the preeminent uh, Old Testament Hebrew scholar, once said, if we're going to understand the New Testament, we really must get a grasp of the Old Testament. We have to have a grasp of the Old Testament. And if we're going to understand the Old Testament, we must have a good understanding of the book of Genesis. And there's two things in Genesis that he considers foundational, chapters 1 through 3, the idea of the fall. That is so foundational. Because if we don't realize that God saved us from real moral guilt, not just mistakes that we've made, not just a few bad choices, but sin, if we don't understand what he, what, what he was rescuing us from, we'll never fully understand the price that was paid for us. So, so Kaiser says we need to understand chapters 1 through 3. Those are foundational. But Kaiser and others believe that the giving of the Abrahamic covenant is perhaps, just perhaps, the single most important event in the Old Testament. Because this is the way that the seed of the woman is going to come. It's going to come through the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Regardless of the Jews' obedience or disobedience, we know they disobeyed. Historically, that's a fact. And we know that the northern kingdom was taken out because of their disobedience. 722 B.C., the southern kingdom was taken out because of their disobedience. 586 B.C., but God's plan kept marching along in spite of their disobedience. The Messiah came and he paid the price that, that we couldn't pay. The price that originally began in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. You see why that's important to understand. Oh, the, the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that it's unconditional is critical. Not just because of the Messiah. It's also critical for us to understand God. So many people today want to worship God apart from the understanding of God. And church has become a place where we come to be entertained. And yes, I want it to be fun for you to be here, but that's not the purpose of the church. We farmed out Bible teaching to other places, and we made the church something that it was never designed to be. And we've paid a price for that. And the price that we paid is what Os Guinness says in, in Christian circles, we're an inch deep and a mile wide now. And this is a terrible thing. So yes, the Abrahamic covenant is critical to your life. Because the Abrahamic covenant shows us that what God promises, he will fulfill. And listen, if we, can't blame, if we can't believe him when it comes to his fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant, how do you know that you're going to get to heaven and he's not going to change his mind about you or me? We've all done things that are worthy of him changing his mind, haven't we? Don't say yes. Just nod your head politely. That's fine. We all have... But I know in whom I have believed. And I'm confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted him until that day. And he's not going to change his mind. How do I know that? Because I've seen at least the, the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled partially. I know it's been already fulfilled with regard to the Messiah. And I know it's going to be fulfilled with regard to one day our Jewish, they will be our brothers at that point. They'll all be part of the, the Messianic community. They will occupy the land that's been promised them. Oh, I'm telling you, when we, when we make silly statements in Christianity like there's no future for Israel, that's not just a dry discussion for seminary class on eschatology. 
That's where we live, my friends, because if there's no future for Israel, guess what? There's no future for you and for me. Because if if our God is not the kind of God that will keep his promises, we've got nothing to look forward to. Oh, I, I am passionate about this, because this is foundational. The whole idea of a unilateral, unconditional covenant is foundational. And it's really where we live. And I know a lot of folks in Christianity don't want to hear about it. But they want to praise God and, and more power to them. That's a wonderful thing to do. Wouldn't ever take that away from them. But they don't even know who they're praising. Not really. And it grieves my spirit deeply. And I don't want us to be that way. Now, not so that we can walk around and say we're great because we understand the Abrahamic covenant. Then we just pride goeth before the fall. That's not it. But to have a really fulfilling spiritual life, we need to understand basic biblical truths. And this is foundational. This is basic. Now, specifically, specifically, the covenant people would be reminded through this rite of circumcision that human nature alone was not enough to generate the promised seed if God was not willing to grant such fruitfulness. You see, Abram's not going to have this child until after circumcision. Now, did circumcision get Abram saved? No. Say no. Paul's going to use this argument in in the book of Romans, chapter 4. Circumcision never saved anybody. Just like baptism doesn't save anybody. Circumcision came after Abraham's salvation. That's Paul's point in that chapter. And the second thing that the covenant people would be reminded would be that impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage. Impurity must be laid aside, especially marriage. That's the second thing that circumcision would do for them. Now, I'm going to reserve comment on that aspect of the Abrahamic covenant because we're going to study that soon with the prophet Malachi on Sunday night. And so I'd invite you to, to join us when that happens. But for today, we must move on to other topics. It should be noted that the Jews were not the first in the ancient world to practice circumcision. There's evidence that the Egyptians practiced it. There's actually evidence on the, with the drawing on cave walls that people practiced it even before the Egyptians, way, way back, as, as far maybe back as, as the, the flood of Noah's time. Other ancient peoples practiced circumcision. Now, one group that didn't practice it, probably comes to mind right away, are the Philistines. Hence, it gives validity to David's comment to to Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? Now, David wasn't just talking about his physical uncircumcision there. David was also talking about his spiritual uncircumcision. And that's a point that particularly the writers of the New Testament will make very clear, although the prophets in the Old Testament did too as well. The Philistines didn't practice it, but many other ancient peoples that surrounded Israel did But God's prescription of the practice carried special significance for the Jews. In the same way that our Lord used bread and cup in a especially significant way at the Lord's table to sacrifice his body and his sacrificial death. Jesus wasn't the first person, the Christians weren't the first people to eat bread and drink wine during a meal. Far from it. That was a staple back then. But... Jesus, in the upper room, prescribed this ritual and ascribed certain symbolic meaning to it. 
Sometimes people have a real hard time with this. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it a different way. Every year Christmas comes around, I'll get an email or two from some of my friends that, that may not be part of the evangelical community. And, and typically, some of these people talk about why in the world do Christians put up Christmas trees? Because after all, and then they'll go through the history of ancient pagan people who put items on trees and worship them, either around the winter solstice or sometimes in the spring. It was different depending on different cultures. And I said, well, you know what? That's not what that tree represents for me. I have attached, the, the Christian community has attached symbolic meaning to a Christmas tree. That's why sometimes people, a cross will be put on the top or an angel on the top or a star on the top signifying the star of Bethlehem. When I see my Christmas tree at home, I think of the birth of our Lord. The presents underneath it are symbolic to me of the presents that were bought, brought to the king. And the tree itself is symbolic of the price that would be paid 30-something years later by that little baby in the manger. So, no, I have no problem with the Christmas tree. And I intend to keep getting one until they don't make them anymore. Which I hope is a long, long time. But that's because, in my mind, that's the symbolic meaning that has been ascribed to it. I had a friend one time that came to me and said, I just hung my Christmas tree upside down in my living room. And she had a one of those vaulted ceilings that was a couple, two or three stories high. She went to a lot of trouble. I think she even got scaffolding to do it because she did it by herself. I said, why would you do that? He said, because it's a pagan ritual. I said, not for me. It's not a pagan ritual. I'm not a pagan, and that's not, my, that's not the meaning I ascribe to it when I do that ritual. So, no, you don't have to feel guilty uh, by the emails that will come around Christmas time with regard to your, to your Christmas tree. Because meaning has been ascribed to it. My point is here. Other peoples of the ancient world practiced circumcision. But when the Jews practiced circumcision, at God's prescription, by the way, this wasn't a suggestion, as you've probably heard in those verses. It's a pretty serious prescription. Anyone, any male who did not practice it was to be cut off from the covenant community. It didn't mean that the Abrahamic covenant was going to be withdrawn, that that person, though, would be cut off from the place of blessing, which was within the covenant community. So this was a ritual. Like all rituals are signed, the sign of circumcision could, and unfortunately many times did, many times did become empty of meaning for those who participated in it. There are times when, when the two Christian rituals, baptism and the Lord's table, unfortunately for some folks have been emptied of meaning totally. But it shouldn't be that way. If you ever find yourself sitting through a Lord's table celebration, and it means nothing to you at all, it's telling you something about you, not the ritual. It's a test for you. It's a way to, to gauge your own spiritual growth if it means nothing to you. But sometimes circumcision did become just an empty ritual. In fact, a lot of times it did. We see this coming up time and time again in the New Testament. For circumcision to have any meaning, though, it had to be associated with faith. It's one thing to be identified with the physical seed of Abraham. And there are certain blessings that do come along with that. Overflow blessings, I call them, or blessings by association they've been called by other folks. But it's another to be identified as the spiritual seed of Abraham. Identification with Abram, Abraham physically is fine. And, and there is something to be gained by it. There is benefit, but oh, my friends, it's limited benefit. The real blessing came when one was identified with Abraham physically and spiritually. Physically and spiritually. 
be identified with Abraham spiritually, one must be, to use the terminology of the scriptures themselves, circumcised of heart, indicating faith. In both the Old and New Testaments, the true seal of fellowship with Yahweh would be circumcision of the heart. This, of course, was a major issue, a major issue at the dawn of the church age. They, they wanted to know what place did circumcision play in the body of Christ. And it was a fair question, by the way. It was a legitimate question. But the bottom line was that it played no role whatsoever. Boy, that offended some people. Because they had gotten so into the ritual without the meaning behind it that it bothered them a lot. That people like Paul would come along and not make people become circumcised and yet welcome them into the body of Christ. How could that be? It played no role. Faith, faith alone in Christ alone. No ritual is going to save you. No ritual is going to save you. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is what's going to provide for your eternal salvation. Rituals are reminders. Rituals are outward expressions of an inward conviction of faith in Christ. When we participate in water baptism... That baptism itself doesn't save us. We're already saved before we participate in that ritual. Certainly when we take the Lord's table, we are not saved each time we take the Lord's table. That's a false teaching. That is nowhere biblical. That's a reminder to us of who Jesus Christ was and what he did. That's why we call it a celebration. Even though tears may stream down your cheeks as they have mine many, many times. When I think of who Jesus Christ was and exactly what he had to suffer for me, certainly I am touched, but I realize that I have already been saved in the past. And it reminds me of my salvation. Circumcision, while practiced medically in our culture today, has no significance whatsoever to the individual's spiritual life. What matters is faith. Two rituals are invoked today, again, to summarize water baptism and the Lord's table. Now, scholars are a bit divided as to which one of these, if either one, has taken the place of circumcision in the body of Christ and in the church. The best understanding, at least in my view, the best understanding is that both of these, water baptism and the Lord's table, are outward convictions of an inward, outward expressions of an inward conviction of faith in Christ. Both are commanded and both should be practiced. Neither one of them is going to get you saved, but both are commanded and both should be practiced in a very serious way. And today, as in ancient times, we must keep ever in our minds that ritual without reality is meaningless. Ritual without the reality of faith is meaningless. Notice in verses 9 and 10. The sign itself is so closely related to the covenant that it's called my covenant. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. He's talking about circumcision there. You and your descendants after you through your generations. This is my covenant that you shall keep. Again, he's talking about circumcision there. The sign was so closely associated with the covenant that it is called my covenant in those two verses. It doesn't mean that they had to do that in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled. We've studied that before, and I'm going to tell you this till you're, you're tired of hearing it. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. 
But if they wanted to enjoy the blessings of being Abraham's seed, they needed to follow the divinely prescribed prescriptions. In verses 12 through 14, the rules for keeping the covenant and the penalty for disregarding it are outlined. Again in verse 12, And every male among you who's eight days old. It was to be practiced on every male, eight days old, as well as those males who were made a part of a Jewish household. Whether they came into it just uh, in terms of a a paid servant or a non-paid slave. And yes, there were slaves in Israel. The Bible doesn't prescribe slavery. It doesn't condone slavery, but it recognizes that slavery was a reality, and there were certain rules that had to be practiced within that, within that reality. So if a slave came into one's household, that slave would be identified with the covenant community by virtue of circumcision. Now, you're, at least half of you are thinking it. What about females? If this was a sign of the covenant for males, then what was the sign of the covenant for females? The sign of the covenant for females was, was that they were identified with this Abrahamic covenant through the obedience of their father or their husband. And I know that's not extremely politically correct today, but that's the reality and that's the truth. They were identified through the obedience of their father or their husband. Now, in some, not all, in some Muslim cultures, um, female circumcision is practiced. It's a barbaric action. It is, it's not mentioned in the Koran, by the way. It's not a, it's not a prescription of the Koran either for male or female circumcision. Muhammad was circumcised, so therefore Muslim men will be typically circumcised as well. But this thing that you read about sometimes, female circumcision, is a brutal, brutal act accomplished by males that consider women to be their property, something that they can do whatever they want to with. And so um, I just want to get that off the table right now. Sometimes people say, well, what about females? They're, they are identified with the Abrahamic covenant through the obedience of their father or their husband or whoever was the patriarch in the family, of, perhaps if it was a, an older brother or something like that. But now we read in verse 14 that if an individual chose not to be circumcised, then they were to be expelled or cut off from the covenant community. In other words, from the place of blessing, because the place of blessing was within that covenant community. It's interesting to note that Moses had not circumcised at least one of his two sons by the time that the Lord called him from Midian to go back to Egypt. Remember that scene? The Lord afflicts Moses at night, and it afflicts him to the point of death because of this. Zipporah somehow, somehow realizing that this is what is happening, goes and circumcises one of the children, one of the boys, to save her husband's life. After she does it, she, she goes through this very kind of grotesque thing where she takes the bloody foreskin, throws it at Moses' feet, and said, you're a, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Apparently Moses didn't care for her tone very much. So he sent her back to live with daddy for just a bit. Uh, at that point, if she had come with him, she would have been nothing but a distraction. Uh, she wouldn't, have been, she wouldn't have, been, have been able to handle what was to come. If she couldn't handle the identification, the right of circumcision to be identified with the Abrahamic covenant, she sure wouldn't be able to handle what was fixing to happen with Pharaoh. 
That's an interesting little, almost a little side story in the book of Exodus, but it's an important one. Even Moses had not circumcised his boys. Now, whose fault is it, the boys or Moses? Moses' fault. Because the boy's not going to be able to circumcise himself at eight days old. So this is a ritual that was practiced by the parents of, on their male children, demonstrating that they understood what was going on. Then that, then that boy would grow up and he would practice it on his kids. Before he could lead the people of Israel, Moses needed to be in conformity to the Abrahamic covenant. Not because the covenant was conditioned upon Moses' obedience. But Moses' enjoyment of the blessings of the covenant was conditioned upon his, his compliance. You see, if Moses is going to go to, to, to Egypt and speak for God, as we all know he did in a magnificent way, maybe a way that, that, that has never been repeated outside of our Lord himself. But if he's going to go there and do that, he needs every bit of blessing he could get. He doesn't need to be walking outside of, living in fellowship outside of the covenant community. So he had to have that boy circumcised. It's not the fault of Moses' son that he wasn't circumcised. It was Moses' fault. It, re- it reflected a lack of obedience on Moses' part. So that's why Moses was the one afflicted, not the boy. Moses was the one afflicted. The Jews who left Egypt were circumcised. That mass of perhaps a couple million people that left, the males, or at least the males except for the rabble, the, the, the little subgroup called the rabble, but the males were circumcised. But, and you know all about that people, they were the rebellious people. They at least had conformed to the sign of the covenant while they were in Egypt, but when they went out into the desert, you know what they didn't do? They didn't circumcise any of the boys. They were born in the wilderness wanderings. So before that generation could enter into the land, and wouldn't we understand that they need God's blessing to enter into the land, or it's not going to go well for them. They had a hard enough time as it was. Before that generation can enter into the land, Joshua was commanded to circumcise all these boys that had been born in that 40-year period to bring them in compliance with the covenant. Again, if they wanted to enjoy the blessings of God, they needed to be in compliance. Well, one might ask, what does this have to do with me? We've already talked about the importance of the Abrahamic covenant, but what about circumcision? You may say, I live in the church age. You've already said that circumcision is is not an important thing in the church age. Yes, it's done for medical reasons. We're not talking about any of that. But for spiritual reasons, we've said that it's faith alone and Christ alone. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, circumcision is not going to help you. Water baptism is not going to help you. Participating in the Lord's table is not going to help you. Giving money to a church is not going to help you. Joining a church is not going to help you. Helping somebody across the street while, while noble and good is not going to help you. We are saved by grace through faith apart from works. For, for we have been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourselves. It's not of works. So no man has any right to boast. He saved us not on the basis of the deeds that we've done, but upon his own righteousness as he saved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. If if you've come this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what rituals you choose to participate in because they're meaningless. A ritual will only have meaning if there's a reality behind it. 
And I'm here to offer you that reality this morning in the closing moments of our service. There is a reality that you need to know about, and it's Jesus Christ. We all need to understand that we can do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing. Our righteousness says, our, our works of righteousness are, as the prophet Isaiah termed them, filthy rags. And I won't go into it today, but it, it didn't just mean a dish rag that had been used. These were the filthiest of rags. That's how God looks at our good works. But there is a good work that he'll accept, and that's the work of Jesus on the cross. That's the only good work he'll accept. So we need to be identified with that. And how are we identified with that? How, are we, how do we become uncircumcised of heart? We do so by faith, and by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So the principle applies to us as well, just as well as it did to the Old Testament folks. Ritual without reality is meaningless. We have our own rituals. And we participate in them all the time. We've got one coming up just a couple of weeks from now. We'll participate in the Lord's table. We do it once a month. And when we participate in that, it's only going to have meaning if you know Jesus. How can you remember somebody you don't know? I mean, maybe you've heard of him, but how can you remember somebody you really don't know? So for us, ritual without reality is just as meaningless. You know, there is so much reality, so much empty, I'm sorry, so much empty ritual in our world today. And dare I say, in the Christian community today, there is so much of Christianity that's empty. And that's whether we talk about the Lord's table or water baptism or, or the singing of a hymn without any reality behind it. It's just words. If there's no reality behind it. Without the reality of faith, the ritual of circumcision did the Jews no good. Without faith, baptism does the individual no good. We are not saved by baptism. We are saved by grace through faith. If one is not walking in fellowship with God, participation in the Lord's table, at the very least, is meaningless, but can be a cause for divine discipline. So says the Apostle Paul. Ritual without reality is meaningless, regardless of what point in time we find ourselves in history. Heavenly Father, help us to worship, worship you in a meaningful way. No matter what it is that we do, whether it's the way that we give of our resources, the way that we give of our time, the way we participate in baptism or, or the Lord's table, just the fact that we come to church, Father, we pray that there will be a reality behind these activities. And we know that that reality begins with faith, faith alone in our Lord Jesus alone. Help us to live lives of faith, Father, so that what we do not, might not be empty, but that it might be genuine and real and acceptable to you for worship. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.